Welcome to AM Now, where we bring you the trending accounting matters we're following. I'm your host, Adam Olson, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Nicole Harger and Matt Fisser. Each bite-sized episode keeps you and your finance and accounting teams in the know. Join us each week as we unpack these issues, topics, and accounting matters now. You're listening to AM Now, an accounting matters podcast. I'm Adam Olson. And I'm Nicole Harger. We're kicking off the month of November this week on the lighter side of things with a couple developments involving our friends at the SEC. Before we wrap up summarizing what the FASB was covering at its latest board meeting. Like a pile of freshly fallen leaves, let's jump right in, bring him back to the AM Now chatter and update on a relatively new SEC rule, the share repurchase rule, finding itself in the center of the headlines of a recent appeals court ruling. As a refresher, back in May of this year, the SEC adopted amendments that significantly expanded existing share repurchase disclosure requirements for domestic corporate issuers, foreign private issuers, and listed close-end funds. These expanded disclosure required issuers to disclose daily repurchase activity quarterly or semi-annually, check a box indicating if certain directors or officers traded in the relevant securities within four business days before or after the public announcement of an issuer's repurchase plan or program, provide narrative disclosure about the issuer's repurchase programs and practices in its periodic reports, and then lastly, provide quarterly disclosure in an issuer's periodic reports on Forms 10-K and 10-Q related to an issuer's adoption and termination of 10-B5-1 trading arrangements. Last week, however, a three-judge panel for the Fifth Circuit Appeals Court concluded that the SEC exhibited arbitrary and capricious behavior when enacting the share repurchase disclosure rules. The Fifth Circuit concurred with the petitioners of the rule that the SEC failed to consider petitioner suggestions for quantifying the rule's effects. The court criticized the SEC for not engaging with these suggestions until oral arguments, which they deemed too late. The Fifth Circuit also expressed concerns about the SEC's failure to substantiate the primary benefits of the rules, particularly in addressing whether share repurchases were a significant issue. They questioned the value of the new disclosures, citing a lack of clarity in the requirements. While the court did not vacate the rule, they did direct the SEC to remedy deficiencies in the rule within 30 days. So where does that leave us today with the share repurchase rules? Presently, the disclosure rules are still in effect. So therefore, impacted registrants should continue preparing for year-end disclosures if applicable. These rules will become mandatory for fiscal quarters commencing on or after October 1st, 2023, impacting Q4 for calendar year-end companies. We will continue to monitor developments in this ongoing matter as the SEC moves forward with responding to the appeals court ruling. S'more to come here. Sticking with the SEC for a moment, they recently made an announcement concerning certain data quality matters on labeling of income statement line items. Specifically, the SEC's Division of Economic and Risk Analysis recently conducted an evaluation concerning how filers are designating elements used for tagging reported items on their income statements across multiple time periods. The assessment revealed a concerning trend where some filers are employing different labels for the same element when tagging identical reported items on the income statement from one period to the next even if the item's description remains unchanged. At times, filers are utilizing one label in one particular report form, such as Form 10-Q, while using a different label for the same element in another form, such as Form 10-K. 
The division emphasized that inconsistencies in labeling elements significantly impacts the ability to compare data across different reporting periods. As a reminder, registrants are strongly encouraged to be diligent in labeling elements using the standard labels provided in the U.S. GAAP taxonomy whenever possible to minimize the need for subsequent label changes unless the description of the reported item itself undergoes corresponding alterations. And to close us out, the FASB board didn't let the sugar high from Halloween stop them from making decisions the next day at their November 1st board meeting. The first topic of discussion was the proposed ASU for profits interest awards. From a scope perspective, the board affirmed its decisions that the amendments apply to both public and private companies, as well as the awards granted to both employees and non-employees. The board also decided to revise the proposed illustrative example included in the exposure draft to add a case that demonstrates how an entity would evaluate whether it has issued or offered to issue its shares, share options, or other equity instruments, and to clarify in cases A and B in the exposure draft how an entity should consider periodic distributions in applying the guidance. The board also decided not to address additional award characteristics or additional improvements to stock compensation guidance highlighted by stakeholders as part of the project. From an adoption and transition perspective, the board affirmed its decision that companies can apply the amendments either retrospectively or prospectively with disclosures of the nature of and reason for the change in accounting principle. The proposed standard would be effective for public business entities with fiscal years beginning after December 15, 2024, and interim periods within those fiscal years. For all other entities, the amendments would be effective for fiscal years beginning after December 15, 2025, and interim periods within those fiscal years. The board also decided that early adoption will be permitted. Next steps, the board directed the FASB staff to draft a final standard for written ballot. Next up, the board decided to add a project to its technical agenda on the accounting for the regulation, measurement, and presentation of government grants received by business entities. The scope of the project includes transfers of monetary and tangible non-monetary assets from a government to a business entity, even covering forgivable loans. However, it excludes exchange transactions and items accounted for under other U.S. gaps, such as revenue from contracts with customers, income taxes, below market interest rate loans, and government guarantees. The board decided that a government grant should be recognized when it is probable that the entity will comply with the grant conditions and will actually receive the grant. Further, the board decided that government grants related to income should be recognized in the income statement when the entity incurs grant-related costs. Entities will also be required to present the grants on the balance sheet as deferred income and separately on the income statement as a credit balance in the related income statement category. For grants that relate to assets, the board decided they should be recognized as part of the cost of the asset using a cost accumulation approach. From both a cash flow and disclosure perspective, the board decided entities within the scope of this project would apply pre-existing guidance under U.S. GAAP in ASC 230 and ASC 832, respectively. The board also agreed to consider additional disclosures that may be decision useful at future meetings. And that's where we'll leave it for this week. <laughs> for a deeper dive into what's trending in accounting and finance, check out our other podcasts on the Accounting Matters feed on your preferred listening platform. Again, I'm Adam Olson. And I'm Nicole Harger. Thanks for listening to AM Now. We'll see you next week. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. 
Embark makes no representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in the podcast series, and it should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors. Information discussed in our podcast may also be superseded by new guidance or as new interpretations emerge. Listeners are cautioned to carefully evaluate any relevant, subsequent, authoritative guidance issued.